Good morning, everyone. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday with whoever you spent it with. Um, I'll just say, it is good to be back with you all this morning. Uh, I just got back with my wife last night from a trip to Georgia to see our family, and uh, I'll say, if any of you have like live far away from your family and you go back and see them over holidays, it's nice. It feels like a homecoming, especially if you're close with your family. We had a great time. But it feels more like a homecoming, to be honest, after the craziness of this week, to be back with you all. And uh, so it's good to have the family of God together and good to meet together on Sunday mornings. I'm thankful for you all. Well, I once heard one of my personal favorite theologians uh, say something about art that's always stuck with me. He said about bad art, he said that bad art was always one-dimensional, that bad artwork is either too brutal touching only on the evils and horrors of this world, or it's too sentimental, only touching on the goodness and joy of this world. And good art, he says, is always a blend of both, acknowledging the real presence of evil in the world while also acknowledging the hope that things can and will be better. And I think as Christians, this should ring extra specially true For us, given that God's good world has been corrupted by sin and that Jesus has come to redeem God's world. Well, if that is the definition of good art, then Romans chapter 8, which we're going to be studying this Advent season, is a masterpiece. It speaks simultaneously of the curse that human sin has plunged this world into, while at the same time, speaking in some of the most elevated language of the entire Bible. It describes the hope that we have as Christians. This chapter begins in verse 1 with no condemnation for those who are in Christ and ends with no separation from God's love for those who are in Christ. In this chapter of the Bible, the Spirit of God wants our souls to be assured and comforted of all that is ours in Christ. It's what he wants for us this Advent season. Now, we titled this series Joyful and Triumphant after uh, the Christmas hymn that we just sung a few moments ago together. I don't know about you all, but I know that my life, more oftentimes than not at Christmas, doesn't resemble joyful and triumphant as much as it resembles feeble and weak and uh, dragging myself around. Uh, We're busy and we're tired and things and the cares of this world tend to drag us down. For some of us, Christmas is a time when you might be grieving more acutely. The loss of a loved one or a dear friend Or it's a time when you want to spend time with your spouse and your children, but your pornography addiction is relentless. It keeps knocking at the door and demanding your attention. For others of us, it's a time when we feel the deep ache of desiring a spouse, but looking to your right or to your left and not having one to spend the holidays with. Or for others, it's a time when we're dominated by the materialistic demands of our culture. For some of us, that looks like getting our families everything they want and then looking around and saying, do we really need all of this? And then for others of us, it's desiring and coveting what other people are able to give 
to their families. But both of those leave us feeling like failures. In this season of Christmas, the season when we're supposed to sing of good tidings of great cheer, often leaves us crushed and singing the blues. And yet this Christmas, as we look in God's word at Romans chapter 8, God wants to lift us from this place by his gospel so that we may truly be joyful and triumphant as we sing in that Christmas hymn. So let's read uh, Romans chapter 8. Together we're going to be in verses 1 through 11 this morning. If you'll turn there with me. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. And I would invite you to pray with me now. Father, we need comfort. We need assurance. We need love. Lord, help us this morning as we study this passage to realize what we already have by faith in Jesus Christ. Help us to take hold of it and to be assured of all that it is for us, all that Jesus is for us. Help us to leave here knowing your love for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this passage teaches us many things. But I think one way I would frame uh, the teaching of this passage is something like this. Where you are determines who you are. Or another way to say it, that the domain we inhabit dictates our destiny. Now, on a smaller scale, we see this to be true uh, in the way that we, how we, uh, where we are from dictates a lot about our lives, both what we are now and where we will be in the future. So myself, I grew up, lived most of my life here in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Central PA. And so that manifests itself in a lot of different ways in my life. But one particular way, if I could sum it up, is that if I'm out to breakfast and my grandpa orders Scrapple and he says, uh, which I wouldn't order, but he says, hey, do you want some of this? 
like 10 out of 10 times I'm going to say yes. Like I can look at it and say that's gross, but you throw some syrup on there and I'm like, I'm all in. I'll eat it every time. But this passage presents us with two domains in which all people live. The flesh, which produces death, and the spirit, who produces life. And naturally, all of us live in this domain that Paul calls the flesh. Now, when Paul talks about the flesh, before we dive in here, I think it's important we get this out in the open. It's easy for us, when we read the word flesh, to default think about the flesh as our flesh and bone bodies. So what Paul does not mean by the flesh is your skin and bones, the stuff that you can cut and that uh, grows wrinkly as you age. That is not what he means by the flesh. He's not creating some kind of dualism where the material flesh is bad and the spiritual is good. Rather, the flesh is an environment that's characterized by slavery, sin, weakness, anxiety, failure, not measuring up, and death. And this environment was epitomized by the time in the Bible called the Old Covenant, when God's good law produced death in sinful people because of their enslavement in this environment called the flesh. Living in the environment of the flesh It's kind of like being dropped in the middle of a 100-square-mile field of quicksand. Every attempt to get out by our own efforts only gets us deeper entrenched in the mud. Ultimately, the flesh is us, as humans, left to ourselves in our own natural habitat. And verses 5 through 8 of Romans chapter 8 give us a realistic picture of human nature as it is in the flesh. So let's look at what these four verses here describe for us of what life in the flesh is like. So notice first in verses 5 and 6 that the domain of the flesh produces a given mindset in us. It says those who are in the flesh who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now the term mindset here, uh, when we think of that, we probably just, we, we, we have thoughts in our minds. So we think of mindset and we think of rational thoughts that take place in our brains. The better way to translate that word mindset might be disposition or desire or even the direction of your heart. It's talking about what we are drawn to because of who we are and where we are. And this makes sense to any of us who own pets and who know the difference between cats and dogs. So a dog, because it is a dog, sets its mind on dog things. So for my two dogs, uh, this takes place and they all the time, 100%, they always want human affection, food, and to go fetch their Frisbee. 100% of the time, that's what my two dogs want. It doesn't matter what hour of the day it is. Cats, because they are cats, set their mind on cat things, like thinking that they're better than everyone else and grubbing their paws on stuff, and I don't really know what cats do, whatever else they do. But my point is that their nature determines their desires. So who they are, by nature of being a cat or a dog, determines the things that they desire, are drawn towards. 
And this is tragic for us as human beings in the flesh because it illustrates our position. If you look at verse 6 again, you'll see that the mindset of the flesh produces death. It's characterized by death and it leads to death. In the flesh, the sinful actions that you are by nature disposed to will ultimately condemn you. And this is because, as verse 7 tells us, that disposition, that mindset of the flesh is directly at war with God. Life in the flesh is like always being in a wartime environment where you will not wave the flag, but you continue to wage war against God and his law and his commandments. And that will only end in condemnation for you. And then if that's not bad enough, the real sucker punch comes at the end of verse 7 and verse 8. If you'll read those with me, we're going to start at the beginning of verse 7. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Not only is it a fact that in the, f- in the flesh we do not please God, not only are we not disposed to please God, but it is not possible in the flesh to please God. And so ultimately, our natural selves as human beings do not and cannot please God. And this results in our condemnation and death. And now, just let that sink in for a second. All of our attempts to prove to God of our inherent goodness are like trying to claw our way out of quicksand. All of our efforts to just try a little harder next time are like trying to breathe in clean air in a coal mine. And there's a religious way that this fleshly mentality manifests itself as well. Or we show up to church, we read our Bible and pray, we do good for others, and we do it all to get God and other people in our debt. In the flesh, our experience of life itself, even, is death. Oh, at Christmas time, it may look differently, right? It may look like some people have it easier. You may look at your neighbor across the street, and they may have perfect uh, Christmas lights set up, right? And you're out there like Clark, Clark Griswold trying to do your uh, staple gun, falling off the ladder. Uh, or you may look and you might say, that person has money and they're able to buy their families things that I could only dream of. It might look like they have their life together. But if you stop and ask them, I bet they, like you, experience life, even at this joyous time of Christmas, as death. Material stuff can't get down that deep. It can't change you. Without a miracle and left to ourselves, we are doomed. We need a complete renovation, a complete overhaul, both inside and out, both environment and heart. Do you think this is true of you? Do you think 
that this is an honest assessment of your situation in life and before God? Do you honestly see yourself as being this desperate? Until you do, you are not ready for Christmas. Until you see yourself in this life, you are not ready to receive the good news. Because the only prerequisite for receiving the good news that God offers us in Romans 8 this, this Christmas is acknowledging that left to yourself on your own terms, you are hopeless. And this is precisely, precisely where God wants you. That is precisely where he delights to step in and to begin working in your life. Let's read verse 9 to begin to see how this happens. It says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. This is the miracle that we need. We need God to break into our domain and bring us life and peace by his spirit in Christ. See, what God does by his spirit is he picks us up out of the environment of the flesh, this nuclear fallout zone that we inhabit, and plants us in the garden of life and peace of his spirit. By his spirit, God breaks into our stuck, dead-end lives in the flesh, and he transfers us into the realm of his spirit. Another way that this passage describes this transfer is that we are taken from the flesh and made to be in Christ. God takes us out of our hopeless situation, and he plants us in Christ. He gives us his very best. He gives us himself. And not only that, but being encapsulated in Christ, being in Christ in this new environment means that every blessing that belongs to Christ belongs to you. And if that doesn't Fill your heart up with joy this Christmas. I hope by the end of the sermon, it does. Let's look at two ways, specifically from Romans chapter 8, that because we are now in Christ, that every blessing of Christ is ours. Let's look at two of these blessings. The first one, there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. Let's read verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right, you're dismissed. Have a great week. <laughs> I mean, come on. Like, you could, you could have that verse on a desert island and have enough to live a life on. Those who are in the flesh are condemned by God, and now they have God declare over them no condemnation? It's a complete reversal. And notice, when does this declaration happen? Not five years from now, not when we get to heaven, not when we finally get our acts together, but now, the moment that you trust in Christ. You see, there's a difference between reducing a prisoner's sentence and then putting them on parole and probation and instantly acquitting a prisoner. That is what you have in the gospel, instant acquittal before God. We don't go on probation 
God doesn't give us a trial run to see how this thing is going to go. He plants you in Christ by his spirit. And in that moment, he declares that right now and for all of eternity, there is no condemnation for you from his throne. Eternal life is yours right now. Now, how does he do this? How does he declare us sinners in the flesh to have no condemnation? Let's read verses three and four. He says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The law cannot save us. Just ask the people of Israel. The old covenant law could not save. And so God sent his son in human form to remedy this problem. God entered into our domain without himself becoming polluted by it in order to redeem us out of it. This is the hope of Christmas. That as Paul says in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, the Son of God became a man and subjected himself to this rebellious world for our sakes. And although Christmas tends to be a time of sentimental realities and 24-7 Hallmark movies that you can access on demand and have your little spritz of Christmas joy, look at the brutality and grittiness of Christmas here in these verses. Jesus came on a mission of war and self-sacrifice. Jesus came for the purpose of giving up his own life for his people. Jesus was born to die. See, the incarnation is not just all about baby Jesus lying in a manger and getting close to us. There's a lot of truth in that, and I pray that you dive into that and unpack that this Christmas. But our sin is real, and it has real effects both in this world and before for our eternal standing before God. And someone has to take responsibility for it, and we all know that it's not us. For us to cry out no condemnation, something else has to happen. And that is where Jesus steps in. You see, in order for us to cry out in joy, no condemnation, Jesus had to cry out on that cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The gospel doesn't downplay the horror of our offenses. But the cross displays true beauty. At the cross, we see the brutality and horror and the ugliness of our sin, and it's all placed on Jesus. And God there in his flesh condemns it. And in that, we see the most beautiful act of redemption in the entire world. That is our hope only in the cross of Christ and our sin being condemned there. And what this means for you right now, today, is that no matter what other people, the devil or yourself, might say to you, you cannot be touched because God has declared you justified, forgiven, and free. No one can condemn you when this is your reality. When Satan accuses you 
of being nothing more than a dirty, perverted porn addict or of doing something that is utterly unforgivable or when you yourself constantly accuse yourself of being a terrible mother, of not amounting to anything in this life, you tell Satan and you preach the gospel to yourself this Christmas that because Jesus entered into the flesh and was condemned on your behalf, there is no condemnation left for you in Christ Jesus. Nothing except love and acceptance and forgiveness and righteousness before God. That is yours. Can you imagine if we lived like this were true for 30 minutes a day? Like what, what would our lives look like? What would our church look like if we lived with the freedom and acceptance that comes from being declared righteous by God? Man, I'm ready for that. I'm praying that's true of myself. I just don't, I don't think we even fathom how much joy there is in living that way and truly believing that before God, there is no condemnation. That's not even it, though. There's more to Romans 8, uh, verses 1 through 11. There's another thing that is ours in Christ that Romans 8, 1 through 11 gives us, and that is no corruption. See, not only do we receive in Christ no condemnation for our sins, but we are actually changed so that we can be freed from sin internally to live a life pleasing to God. Because like I said at the beginning of the sermon, where you are determines who you are. So when you are picked up out of the realm of the flesh by God's grace and transplanted into the realm of the spirit, it transforms you. God's spirit goes down deep into your heart and renovates you from the inside out. He changes your desires from the ground up so that we no longer have to live like cats being disposed towards cat things, but we can live in the glories of being a dog disposed towards dog things. Yes, I did just make that uh, comparison. I'm sorry, cat people, but you're in the flesh. Uh, Our heart's deepest desire changes when God transfers our address such that what you really want as a Christian down deep to your core is God and to obey him. See, as Christians, you cannot say when you sin, you cannot say anymore, oh, that's just who I am. Because that's not who you are. God has changed you by his spirit down deep so that who you are is Christ's. That's what Paul says in Galatians 2. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So you can't say that. Now sin wrecks that and sin messes that and it distorts our vision. But ultimately those who are in the realm of the spirit want God and to obey him deep down to your core. It's the deepest desire. You go from war against God to following after God. Because the spirit of life dwells in you, you no longer have to be crippled by the power of sin. You no longer have to be crippled by people pleasing, by focusing on yourself to the exclusion of others, by feeling constant anxiety about not doing enough 
by slavishly returning to your sinful habits and the shame that accompanies them. Now, in the Spirit, your experience of life is life and peace. It's peace with God. It's love for God and your neighbor, and it's fellowship with God by walking in obedience. Living in the Spirit and experiencing what it's like to be freed from the power of sin is like breathing in crisp mountain air for the first time. And the best part of all of this is is that you really can now, in the Spirit, please God. Like a father who graciously bears with his growing child as the child is fumbling around trying to learn what is right and wrong, so God bears with us. Yes, God does look at us and see the righteousness of Jesus. And that is the only ground of our eternal standing before God and for our eternal life, our righteousness and our good works, our filthy rags. Amen. But in the Spirit, you now get to live in such a way that albeit imperfectly, as you stumble along the path of obedience by God's spirit, you can please God. He looks on your life as you fumble around trying to obey him by his spirit and he smiles on you. That's amazing. We're not done yet. Let's look at Romans 8, chapter, or verses 10 and 11 as we close. It says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, does anybody hear that line in verse 10 about the body being dead because of sin and just want to give like a hearty amen to that. I mean, I don't know if it's you personally or people that you love or friends or family that are experiencing this, but we all know sin doesn't just corrupt us internally in our desires. It affects our bodies too. It affects us. And if the Spirit is dwelling in you, Right now, what these verses tell you is that if the Spirit's dwelling in you, your resurrection is as good as done. It's as good as done right now. That's the kind of assurance that Romans chapter 8 gives you. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our inheritance. If you have the Spirit right now, sure you may die, but your life only gets better from here. That's the beauty of living by the Spirit. And think about, think about what this means, real quick, this Christmas for your life. Think about what this says to what so often occupies our mind and our heart and where our fears and our anxieties are. Disease, cancer, death, they have no power against the Spirit of God. They are no match for what the Spirit of God can do. And he's proved it already because he's already raised Jesus from the dead. And he will do it to all who are indwelt by the Spirit. So if you are in Christ and indwelt by the Spirit, your resurrection is as good as done right now. 
And this is all because Jesus became incarnate. If God had not become a man in a human body, in the domain of the flesh, we would have no hope for our bodies. But because of Christmas, despite what I know so many of you are struggling with in here, facing the effects of sin on the human body, because Jesus became a man, you will be raised again. And when you are raised, you will not just get a new body, although you will, and it will be awesome, because you'll be able to run around and eat and laugh and play and enjoy everything that our bodies are designed for without the limitations that we have here. You'll get all of that. But when you're raised, you'll not only get a new body, you'll get to see Jesus, your Savior, face to face. And when you see him, he's still going to have marks in his hand, in his feet, and in his side. He is still going to bear the marks of the brutal reality of sin and what it cost him to get you to that point. And yet, you are going to look at him, and he's going to be shining in the glory of the Spirit, something that you will have never experienced before. And just by looking at it, you're going to be changed. It's going to be amazing. And in that, the brutality of our sin and the sentimental beauty of God's love meet in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's there that our hope is found. So church, this Christmas, get your head up and look at Jesus Christ and see in him no condemnation for your sin, no corruption anymore of your nature. And ultimately, you will be freed of that Finally, one day, when you are raised again and you see your Savior face to face. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you came in the likeness of sinful flesh, as it says in verse 3. That, Lord, you did not stay aloof from our sin, but you entered in to our environment and you saved us from it. And now because of your sacrifice, you declare over us there is no condemnation. You work in us by your spirit the power of a complete renovation. So God, I pray that you would help us today and throughout this Advent season, as we continue to look at this amazing chapter in the Bible, help us realize what is ours already in Christ. Wake us up to the gospel, to the joy that's ours now by virtue of our relationship with Jesus. And may that entire, may that radically and entirely change the way that we live. We love you. Thank you for your son and for your sacrifice. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.